Let's take our Bibles. Let's turn open to Deuteronomy 4. Yes. Yes. Uh, they don't, I mean, probably the same mindset that they have now, the fact that they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That was probably the situation. What the hell? No, no, they rejected it. As far as, as far as uh, Jews, Jews that responded to Jesus Christ, absolutely. But we see in, uh, we see in Romans chapter 11 that right now they are experiencing a partial hardening. And the reason why they're experiencing a partial hardening is because that when the Messiah showed up and the full revelation of God was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, and they didn't accept it, but instead rejected it and tried to kill him on top of that, they're held culpable for their, their actions. They weren't acting ignorantly uh, in that situation. And so, yeah, serious, serious stuff. Very serious stuff. Absolutely. Sorry, we were having a conversation before this, so... I am, I am really excited about what we're studying in Deuteronomy the next two weeks, okay? In fact, I was praying through it, looking through it, studying through it, and I found some Bible study stuff. This will be a good indicator of whether or not you're going to do well in the hermeneutics class if you want to participate in that in the fall. And I pulled out the 11 by 17 copy paper that we have, and I put a portion of scripture on the 11 by 17 copy paper so that next week we can all mark it out. I'm going to pull out the little overhead projector, and we're just going to be nerds. I love it. It's going to be a good time. So, You know what? I do have the handout, but I'm saving that one until next week. I do have the handout. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, some of the information that we're going to use next week on it is going to be uh, on here. So if you want, you can read through that. Thank you. Or are you just coming to get yours? No, okay, just want to make sure. <laughs> just make sure. I didn't know how you operate with that, so. <laughs> That'd be funny. Thank you, Jeremy. Goes back to his seat, sits down. There you go. There you go. Absolutely. But yes, I have some of this on here. If you want to look it over, we're going to be talking about what inclusios and what chiasms are next week. Yes, inclusio and chiasm. Two, three, four, five. There you go. Okay. There we go. Thank you. The Lord will repay you richly, sir. There we go. There we go. Awesome. So I've left you a little section of notes up here. And then we are going to be doing some severe observation next week and probably the week after that will probably carry us two weeks when we're dealing thinking with the 11 by 17 piece that we have the scriptures on. Inclusio and chiasm. What a chiasm is, or it's also known as chiasma or chiasmus is what they're known as. But those are terms for next Sunday, Sunday school, not for today. Today, our main idea is to just go over the content and try to get to verse 21 today of chapter 4, and then we can take 
uh, the inclusio and the chiasm that we find there, and we can start explaining and showing you guys exactly what that is in Scripture. Because once you develop an eye for looking for those literary devices in Scripture, you will start seeing them everywhere. It's really awesome. So, But before we start, we definitely need the Holy Spirit to help us as we study. So let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Uh, please bless it. And praying, Father, be fruitful for your glory. The Lord, you would add to us your word. Uh, to bring it by way of reminder uh, as, we, as we need it throughout our lives, to remind us of a great and holy and gracious God that we serve. Father, your character uh, being completely full of integrity. And, and Father, that we be thinking rightly about you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in chapter 4, here's what we're doing. Let me give you a brief synopsis. I know I kind of bring it up every time, but we've got to get familiar with it for two reasons. Number one, week to week we forget. And number two... Because we are New Testament Christians, a lot of times we become Old Testament forgetful about things. And so it's important for us to remember what's going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 through 4, we are dealing with what is known as the historical prologue. A historical prologue. And the reason is, is because Deuteronomy is written in a style or in a fashion that was known as a suzerain vassal treaty of the day. The suzerain is the great king. The vassals are the lesser kings. And this is a covenant contract solidified agreement that God is making with Israel. Now this is important to bring up. The contract or the covenant that is made with Moses, which is what they're reiterating now with the second generation in Deuteronomy is conditional in nature. Uh, how many people have heard of the Mosaic Covenant called the if-then covenant? Anybody ever heard that, if-then? Nobody's ever heard that, okay. It is conditional. Let, let me give you an example. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Why is it unconditional? Number one, God's making all the promises towards Abraham. He doesn't ask for anything in return from him in order for the promises to happen. But number two, when it comes time to give a visual picture of the agreement, and you'll remember this from Genesis 15, he has Abraham get some animals and cut them down the middle and lay them side by side and create a path. And then if you remember, he puts Abraham to sleep and it says that a fire, almost like a pot that's on fire, passes through the pieces and that's kind of like the shaking the hand in the covenant. Well, it's only God who passes through the pieces. Only Yahweh passes through. Abraham never gets a chance to. No matter how much Abraham messes it up, and he is... Check, check. Ah, oh, there we go. Good deal. Yay, praise the Lord. So, what were we talking about? Forgive me. Oh, the difference between the suzerain vassal treaty and the difference between conditional and unconditional covenant. The covenant that is made with Moses, however, made th with Moses being the speaker for and to, for God, to Israel in this situation, is the idea of if... You will obey me. If you will give your solemn devotion to me, I will protect you. I will cause you to live long. I will put you in this land. I will provide for you everything that you need. If they break the covenant, God is not obligated to keep his end of it. That's important to understand. The Mosaic covenant is the only conditional covenant that is in all of the Bible. It's very important for us to get. So what we're looking at here is a historical prologue. Moses is reiterating all the major events that have happened. If you remember at the end of three, the big event that he talks about to them is how he was angry with them, and so he struck the rock, 
and therefore didn't receive the inheritance that all of them are going to receive and how much he regretted that now because he was seeing what God was doing. And, and get this, this is a perfect picture of what we understand about the inheritance that we will receive for faithfulness as Christians. We don't begin to understand the lengths and the value of glory that waits. But when we get a glimpse of it, we will realize as Christians just how needless some of the sins that we created or or committed were. It was just completely ridiculous that I would even do that because it costs me this part of the inheritance. Well, notice Moses is saying, I should have listened to exactly what God said and did exactly what God said. And I even begged him. And God even told me, don't bother me anymore with this. I've already told you it's not going to work. You're not crossing over. But he didn't have that deep, profound regret over that sin until he saw exactly what God was starting to provide. He got a first glimpse of it, and it came upon him. I'm not going to get to see the rest of this. It's a perfect picture of what it looks like in us dealing with sin. So in chapter 4, let's just go ahead and start in verse 1. I know we've, we've moved forward a little bit, but let's start that and let's roll forward. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform. Very important. These are to be done. And let me, let me, let me give this to you real quick because this is one of the biggest problems we run into. We want to know all about the Bible. We want to attend all these Bible studies. If the teaching of the word does not make its way to application in our lives, we cannot say that we have received the word of God. It's impossible. The Bible was meant to change lives, not to fill heads. So notice these statutes, these judgments, which I am teaching you to perform. Why? So that you may live and go in and take possession of the land to receive this inheritance which Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, or am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep, that you may guard it, the commandments of Yahweh, your Elohim, which I commanded you. Now, this is what we left off with last time was this event that he brings up here, which is very interesting. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it, Peor, the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to Yahweh your Elohim are alive today, every one of you. Now stop. Think back to what we looked at last week with this incident in Baal Peor, however you want to say that name. And notice what he's saying. You saw what happened. These people that were involved, they died. Does anybody remember how many people died that day? 24,000. 24,000 people died that day. Anybody remember why they died that day? Because they what? They shared in the feast. They shared in the idol worship. And does anybody remember when we compared that to Psalm 106, verse 28, what was the feast about? It was actually a feast of what? Anybody remember? I expect a lot of you guys from Sunday to Sunday. (laughs) It was actually a feast to the dead. They were actually eating a meal that was in commemoration to the dead. 
Psalm 106, if you want to read through that, that psalm gives you a really good lined out history, uh, a psalmist looking back at Israel and their history going through that. It's, it's really, really good to take a look at. So they were participating in a feast of the dead. They were involved in idol worship. And if you remember, they were having sacrilegious sexual interactions with the Moabite women there. So much that one guy went to the very tent of meeting and had sex with the, with the lady there, which was probably the temple prostitution type of stuff they had in Moab. And in doing so, everybody remember Phineas? Oh, we all remember Phineas, don't we? And you ladies went, right? That piece of dirt. Phineas will get you. Exactly. He took a spear and he went after him. And remember, it said he got him through the chest, both of them at the same time. Now, that is not the magic JFK bullet. It's not. It's the fact that they were in the midst of intercourse and he put an end to it. And it says, the anger of the Lord subsided. Interesting. Interesting. Because of that one act of faithfulness, because out of holy indignation, Phineas took that step. God made a covenant, made a contract with Phineas and his family right then and there. I will take care of you in the land. It's interesting. Does everybody see that God desires to be the preeminent voice in our lives? Doesn't matter we're not Jewish. Doesn't matter that we're not part of Israel. Doesn't matter that we're not coming out of the promised land or going in the promised land. God's character is that he wants to be personal with each and every one of us. He wants that time. He wants you to listen to his say in the situation and believe everything that he promises you. We see that page after page after page. So notice verse 4, the ones who held fast to the Lord your God, to Yahweh your Elohim, are alive today, every one of you. Because you were, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, about keeping these statutes and judgments, you guys remember this incident and 24,000 people died? Those of you who didn't participate in that, and if you remember, there were people that were visibly mourning outside of the, of, of the tabernacles. Everybody remember that? They were mourning when this was coming on. They, they couldn't believe the sin of their brothers and sisters there. They were grieved by it. Moses says, every one of you, that rejected that stuff, didn't want anything to do with it, made the decision to hold fast to Yahweh, you're alive now. Here's the prime example. This is a fresh reminder. Verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my Elohim commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. Notice, Moses has taught you, you are now to do it. They have to go hand in hand. In fact, one thing it's important to, to think about maybe for us, we talk about the separation between Israel and, and, and the church. We really need to have what a Jewish mindset is of the idea of knowing something. We really do. In the time of the church, when it was founded in Acts chapter 2, and when you had this Hellenistic philosophy that dominated everything in the Roman world, the idea of knowing something was only on a philosophical level. Think about whenever you're dealing with Paul, and you remember about the Areopagus, he's in Athens, they take him to the Areopagus, and it says, everybody there just spent all their time talking about what they know, and you know, you know this, and oh, you got something new, and they're all just brain tickling each other is what they're doing. How much can you know? How much can you know? The Jewish understanding of if you knew something was the fact that it had affected your life so that you live differently from that point on out. That's the idea. 
That's the idea that we need to embrace is that being taught something is because that teaching is not just to sit there. It's actually meant to do something. Here's one thing that I was impressed with when I first got here. I could tell that you had an excellent pastor because a lot of your responses and engagement with me and engagement with one another and engagement on certain topics that some people consider uh, passe, you guys handled the sex sermon really well. Good job. Sermon number seven, right? Is that what it is? Is that what you guys say behind my, behind my back? Sermon number seven, I've heard. Yeah, remember sermon number seven? You guys handled it great. And what did that tell me? It told me that somebody spent the time to pour into you and to develop you guys to a mature level to where, you know what? We can talk about the truth in that way and it'd be good. That's the idea. Knowing it, embracing it, doing it. It changes us. So look at verse six. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding. Now watch this. You might want to mark this, underline this, circle it, bracket it, whatever. In the sight of the peoples. Stop for a second. We're talking about the statutes and judgments of Yahweh that Moses is commanding. Keep them, do them. If you do them, you're going to live. If you do them, you're going to come in. Possess the land, you will get this inheritance, you're going to prosper. This is true uh, uh, prosperity preaching right here, not what we hear today from Benny Hinn and all those quacks. That's not what it is. This is the idea of obeying the Lord, holding fast to his word, and he will be the one who sustains and provides. That's the idea. But what does it mean there when it says, keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. What does that tell you about them keeping the law? It is a witness. It is a witness. Dave brought up a really good point earlier. You can't really distinguish if one person's a Christian and another one's not by looking across the room, right? We don't have big crosses all embrazened on our foreheads. Maybe we should start doing that. Maybe that'll help people a little bit to know us. But what you find out is a lot of people want to interact and by your actions because there's something that's different, because there's something that's setting you apart, which is the whole idea of being holy, is really what makes the difference here. Notice this. By you knowing these and doing them, it's going to be your wisdom. You know what wisdom is? It's watching somebody else that did something stupid and then not doing that. That's wisdom. That's why the Bible is full of, of characters, warts and all. You don't want to have problems with your family? Guess what? Don't shirk your responsibility like David did in leading the army. Don't be wandering around gazing on naked women as they're bathing. And then don't impregnate them while they're married. I know it sounds real harsh, but guess what? That's wisdom. David already did that sin for you. You don't have to do it. That's really helpful. Does everybody, I mean, is, am I wrong? Why are you guys, why are you guys smirk? Why are you guys doing that? That's so rude. That hurts my heart. But think about why. Talk to me. Talk to me. Why? Huh? It's true, isn't it? Ooh. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that's why I sometimes tell you guys, we should never be surprised that Christians sin. That's what they do. And the last thing they need is us coming in with a billy club and labeled Bible and jacking them over the head with it. They already feel bad about what they did. But in the same respect, let's be honest. When we take a phrase like, oh, if I could just be like David. Do you want to be like David under category A, a man after God's own heart? Or do you want to be like David category B, I want to make sure and sleep with married people. Everybody see how that works? We really got to clarify, there was nobody like David. The Lord said so himself. He cares about nothing else but coming after me. Even with Solomon, because of the faithfulness of your father, David, I will do this to you. Which says a lot about generational faithfulness and how that comes over on our kids, right? But think about that. Because, you're, because your father was a lover of God, I'm not going to rip the kingdom from you now for your unfaithfulness. Instead, it'll happen to your son. Everybody see the generational unfaithfulness of Solomon falling over to Jeroboam? Uh, or was it Rehoboam? Rehoboam. It was Rehoboam was his son. Jeroboam was the other guy. But everybody see how serious that gets. The mistakes in the Bible are meant to teach us, don't do that. How much better? How, everybody dream with me. What would America look like if we just learned from David's mistake? You think we'd have a near the national debt that we have? No. Because a lot of it comes from welfare situations, child support situations, because fatherlessness is an epidemic in this country. This is an interesting thing. Uh, this was real interesting. I went down with the missions team last Friday. We saw them off, prayed with them, excellent time. But in the van ride back, I'm riding shotgun, and Jerry Blystone's driving. Okay? We're two and a half hours with Jerry. Uh, he's a talker, right? So, so I work, I'm, I'm chatting with him and everything, and, and he, he, we start talking about stuff, some of the stuff that's going on in his business. They've done some renovations, had some new employees come in, that kind of thing. And he said something that is just fantastic, and it, and it really reflects our culture. He said, Jeremy, I've noticed as I'm hiring these young people in, they're energetic, they're competent, they're, they're really wanting to do a good, good job. They get it, and I love having them there. He's like, but here's what I'm noticing is, is, is all of them are looking for a father figure to speak encouragement to their life. And it's true. And my question is, if they're all looking for a father figure to speak encouragement in their life, what, what happened 20 years ago? You see what I'm saying? It's really revealing. If that's what people are looking for, well, it's, it's not any different from this. Learning from the mistakes of the previous generation so that we're not making them now. And the Bible gives us the guidelines. If we could just call a spiritual timeout when sin is confronting us and go, wait, Paul already did this. Jacob already did this. I don't have to do this. And because of what Christ has done, I have the power to turn away from those sins. Man, life would be different. If everybody, here, here's, here's the duh statement of the day. If we just did what God asked, everything would be different. Everything. It's amazing. It's amazing. So let's move back to this. Notice, in the sight of the people, it's going to be your wisdom. It's going to be your understanding. And it says here, in the sight of the people, it's going to be a witness to them who will hear all these statutes. Notice that. It's not just Israel that knows the law. Israel is going to know the law and seek to abide by the law of God, but the information contained in the law is going to trickle outside of this nation. And they're going to hear about it. Wait a second, what? 
There's these people who came in and their God overthrew all the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, all these people. They, they, they overthrew them all and they live like this because that's what their God said. Yeah. Well, that's completely different from how we live. Yeah. But look what it says. It's very revealing what Moses says here. Who will hear all these statutes and say, now notice, this is going to be the response of the pagans when they look at Israel keeping the law of God. Surely, this great nation is a, what? Wise and understanding people. Goes exactly with what it said in the verse, right? But stop for a second. How does a pagan know what is wise and understanding? They know the difference between right and wrong. What are you going to say? The general revelation of God. The conscience. Our conscience testifying. Don't do that. Okay, you can do that. That'll be really fun. You know? Does everybody see that everybody has this sense? I'm a pagan out here running around in a grass skirt, worshiping something I carved out of stone, and, you know, my kids are weird. I don't know. But you're living in this strange pagan culture that's completely separated from Yahweh the Creator, and you hear about this, and your response is going to be, wow, that's really wise. They really have a God who's given them some great understanding about some stuff that we don't do. That's pagans, get this, responding to the revelation of God through a people who are abiding by the truth principles of God. You talk about evangelism. I know Pastor Steve's a big advocate of lifestyle evangelism. Knowing God's word and doing it. And letting Christ live his life through us so that it pours over on other people. And we get to have those conversations. Why? I guarantee you because pagans are looking for answers. How many people are going to a grocery store today? Okay. You're going to go through the checkout line. And you're going to see People Magazine, National Enquirer, you know, for the haughty-taughty uh, supermarket, we might have National Geographic, something. But read some of the headlines. They're dirty as all get out, but read them. Why? Because it's pagans looking for answers. Or they think that they're providing people with the answers. Some of that stuff is obscene. Some of that stuff's embarrassing. Some of that stuff you wonder why there's not like some kind of black label over the top of it so you could just see the top of the, of, the, of the name, the title of the magazine, and everything else should be blotted out of it. It's insane. But pagans are looking for answers. Guess who has the answer? Well, God does, but who's carrying it? We are. We are the virus that needs to infect this world. That's exactly right. So notice what it says after that. Verse 7, this is still what they say. For, here's the pagans' explanation of what they meant by that statement. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh, our Elohim, whenever we call on him. Do you guys realize what this is saying? Why is that? Because at the time in the Middle East with the Canaanites and all those people, gods weren't close. They weren't personal. In fact, that ideology perpetuated itself into the Greek culture and in the Roman culture. And when you dealt with the gods, Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and all these things, they weren't close. They weren't intimate. They weren't looking to be personally involved in your life. 
They considered humans just kind of like a, eh, just kind of like a byproduct of whatever's going on. And if they, for some reason, had some sort of interaction with people, it was considered an anomaly. This is not the way that the world has structured its gods. It's not the way that Satan has convinced people to believe about God. Anybody ever met someone who has a problem with a personal God? You have actually? What, what do they say about it? I'm curious. And, and why is that? Well, they. Okay. Okay. So the problem of pain and suffering negates that there's a personal God. Okay. Is that a valid argument? I mean, of course, we're all Christians in church with their Bibles open. We're all going to say no, right? Uh, we better, otherwise we'll question our salvation. But why is it not? What reason do you give somebody like that? It's because of sin, which makes it whose fault? Ours, exactly. You're upset about your own stuff. That's essentially what it is. What does God do? What does God do in response to that? I mean, you're dealing with somebody, there's no personal God, there's too much suffering, there's too much misery and pain, there's no way, and you say, wait a second, this misery and pain is brought on by us. Then what do we say about God? God created the world how? Perfect. And even when we messed it up, God sent a Savior how? Goes the same way, perfectly, didn't he? In fact, when we talk about Jesus being all-sufficient to take care of sin, we're talking about that he covered the gamut of, of the entire problem. The entire problem has been taken care of. Well, what about suffering and misery? Pause. How did Jesus die? Isn't he called the suffering servant? So if we see God identifying anywhere with human beings on a personal level, he identifies with them in their suffering. You see that? In fact, we talk a lot about how Jesus suffered on our behalf so we wouldn't have to in that way. Can't even imagine enduring a cross. But notice, God's a lot more personal than sometimes people are comfortable with thinking about. We just need to have them stop and think about what the Bible actually says, not what they think it says, but what it actually says about God to make them realize, you know what? God actually identifies with you a lot more closely than what you think. And his heart is for you, not against you. He died for you. Colleen, go for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is the harsh roadblock of the gospel. That's why we don't need to heap anything else on top of believing in Christ. The, the harsh roadblock they have to deal with is, okay, I'm going to have to come to the terms that I need saving. I've actually put myself in a position, and I need to be saved, and I can't save myself. Complete and utter helplessness. So Christ comes in, takes care of the problem, extends a hand of grace towards us, and says, believe in me, and I will give you eternal life as a free gift. That's humbling. You can't do it for yourself. Yes. 
sometimes for some people, sin's a, sin's a problem. And for some people, they would rather hang on to their sin than, than admit that they're wrong. Doesn't change the fact that they don't know the truth. Doesn't change the fact that they're not a prime candidate for the truth. They just refuse to accept the truth. In fact, that's the whole answer that Paul gives at the end of Romans 9 for why the Jews aren't saved. It's not for any other reason but one. They refuse to believe. That's it. So, good point. Very good. So notice here, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is Yahweh our Elohim, notice this, whenever we call on him. In other words, they have an accessed privilege to the creator. We call on him, he shows up. Now, why would that be something special? Well, think of what you know about people dealing with false gods. Everybody remember when Elijah's getting ready to have the showdown on the mountain with these prophets of Baal, right? Which is interesting, Baal pure, right? He's getting ready. 350 of them come out. He says, here's what we're going to do. You call on your God. I'll call on my God. In fact, I think it's more you call on your God. I'll call on the God, right? <laughs> and we'll worship. And whoever answers, that's God. They said, great. You remember the story, right? So take them up on it. They start worshiping, doing all kinds of crazy things. They're not getting any kind of answer. And so they actually start taking out objects and cutting themselves because that's the way that they worshiped. Maybe we'll get your attention if we bleed more. Talk about work salvation, right? Good gravy. And it's funny because we don't really get this notion, and you guys might know what's coming, from the English translation, but in the Hebrew, Elijah's actually saying, you know what? He might be in the bathroom and can't hear you. He does. He might be disposed right now is the idea. You know, he's, 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 he's on the John, and so therefore he's not paying attention to you guys. He actually mocks them. Now talk about the believers can't have fun with people, right? We can, we can. That might be one of those wisdom things we want to learn from Elijah, right? But what does he do? He builds an altar, he digs a trench, puts the items on there, and he douses it with water over and over and over, buckets and buckets of water. And then he steps back and prays something like, God, show these guys what's up. Only way more holy than that. And fire pours out of the sky, consumes everything, including the water in the trenches. Nothing is left. Elijah stands up and goes, kill them. 350 dead that day. And here's what's sad in the next chapter. He hears that the queen got mad at him, so he runs for the hills. Kill them. She's what? right? I mean, it's just something else. It's amazing. What's that? He lost sight of it. He lost sight of the promises. He lost sight of who God was in that situation. It's amazing. What's that? Exactly. That's what it is. That hell hath no fury. What? I got a woman upset? I got to go. <laughs> That's what it is. So notice, whenever we call on him, what? We actually have a God, if you don't get anything else out of today, because we only got five minutes left, you know, we actually have a God that when you call on him, he answers. He answers. He is the God who answers. Look at verse 8. 
Here's the, they keep, they keep going on. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments? Now notice this, their laws, their rules, how they abide in their society, statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today. In other words, righteousness can be observed and recognized by pagan people. They can recognize it when they see it. This makes me wonder about some of our evangelism efforts today. This is just me. Call me, I'm pessimistic. Send me an email that's, 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 a, that's a nasty email calling me out. That's fine. I'm convinced the reason why a lot of people aren't coming to faith in Christ is twofold. Number one, we're just not sharing the gospel. That's just really what it boils down to. I love it because I'm, I'm preparing to teach on spiritual gifts later in the fall when we get into the church. And so as things come to mind, I'm writing them down. I've actually got a list of things that aren't spiritual gifts. Anybody ever heard, oh, they have, a, they have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Anybody ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay, that's the most unbiblical thing ever. There is no spiritual gift of evangelism. Everybody's called to share Christ. Nobody has a certain gift. There's an office of evangelist in Ephesians 4 that every local church should have an evangelist that not only practices evangelism, but encourages and teaches the body to evangelize. Makes you think about where maybe we need to go in the future as a church. Probably need to get a hold of an evangelist and have them come here and teach us and encourage us and pray for us and lead us on in the efforts of evangelism. Very important to think about. But the number two thing is, is we simply aren't living in such a way that makes a difference from the way the rest of the world lives. And then you have to ask yourself this question. If I'm not living in such a way as to where it's influencing other people or, or, or attracting other people to want to know about this righteousness that they don't have or making these decisions that they don't have a handle on right now, then I have to ask myself if there's an element of unbelief that is ruling my life right now because it's not being evident. I think that's important. I think that's really important for us to take an evaluation for a second and say, you know what? Yeah, I believe in the Lord, and yeah, I go to church and all this, but let's be honest, man. Is it really reaching out there and showing to people? Is it really undertaking the efforts of, my life needs to be conformed to that of Christ because he's made it possible? I think that's an important question. So let's stop there. We've got a couple of minutes. Are there any questions, thoughts, anything anybody wants to add to this? Because when we get into 9... I promise you we will we will destroy 9 through 21 next week so we can get into this cool stuff I have. I promise you. We will, we will go through and, and pull it all apart. I'm sorry it goes so slow, but I hope you guys are getting the valuable lessons out of this, uh, this importance, especially what God is trying to do with a nation of people. He is trying to use them as his megaphone to make his presence known to all of the world around him. We're actually going to talk about that next Sunday uh, during the sermon, how Israel is God's chosen people. Uh, and if you're able to do, here's some good homework for you if you're interested. If you're able to do any research on the internet on what is called missional dispensationalism, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-A-L, missional dispensationalism. If you're interested in the book uh, that we made available, Let the Text Speak, that just came out a couple of weeks ago, the blue book that was for free, Look up in there the, the chapter on missional dispensationalism and read through it. Very interesting. 
but God has a plan. God has a way to fulfill it, and his plan is always about making himself known to people. Every dispensation. Yes, ma'am. How do you know what your gifts are? It's a good question. How do you know what your gifts are? Well, one thing that I've been doing with some people that have asked me is I've given them a little paper test. And the reason is, is because the papers that go with it do a good job of explaining each of the gifts in a succinct manner, but also the test isn't so cumbersome where you want to roll your eyes and throw up when you're done with it. You actually go through it, and it actually comes out to be pretty accurate with people. Um, in fact, I just had a talk with Chris Capecchi on Tuesday. He came in after he had done the spiritual gifts test, and he's like, it says I'm this, but I don't see this. I was like, well, let's talk about it. And as we started to talk about it, he realized these are my gifts. It's just a lot of times I don't recognize them. One of the best ways to find out what your gifts are is ask your brothers and sisters. When we've been in ministry situations or, or hanging out or whatever it is, what gifts do you see? I'll probably tell you. A lot of people usually can recognize gifts better than others. Another thing I would encourage you to do is study what the Bible has to say about it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Read them all together. The love chapter is not about your wedding, okay? That's important to understand. Uh, it's about how we operate with one another, exercising our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Um, 1 Peter 4, I think it is, has some stuff in there, but it's the distinguishing between speaking and serving gifts is what it is. But also let me know, and I'll get you one of those papers, and you can, you can go through and look at it. If you've got questions about it, talk about it. I'm excited to get to that point. I can't wait to teach on it. I've already calculated we're going to be spending 15 weeks on spiritual gifts. Okay, That's just how amazing the subject is and just how desperately the church needs to know what it is because the church is the only dispensation that has those gifts Nobody else was given them. So we have to be responsible. And I am convinced that it is going to be a primary criteria that we are going to be judged by at the judgment seat of Christ. God gave you these spiritual gifts so that you could live and exercise for the unity and betterment of the body. How did you do with that? I think that's going to be one of the main things as far as obedience. Colleen. Uh, 1 Corinthians. 12 through 14, chapters 12, 13, 14. Mm -hmm. Those would be the two main ones to start with. And then as I, when I give you the paper, you can look through. There'll be some more references here and there about it, but the paper really helps to unpack a lot of what's going on with that. So, Anything else? Anybody got anything else? Everybody come to the Super Bowl party? Yes, please. Please, for me? Don't make me look bad. Stand before the Lord, you know, they weren't really fellowshipping at that Super Bowl party, Jeremy. I tried, God, I tried. <laughs> Somebody bring cornhole. Do you guys call it cornhole up here where you have the two things with the hole and bean bags? Yeah, bring, bring, let's set that up in here. That's not sacrilegious. You know, just don't get angry when you play. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's good, right? All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Uh, seeing God that you want to instill in people righteousness. Not just righteousness before your sight, but exercising righteousness, showing an experience of righteousness, practically living out a life that they could never live apart from your involvement. Father, thank you that you've not just given us Jesus, but you've given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and that Jesus desires to live his new resurrected life through us, a privilege that no one else has been able to have. Thank you, God, for such an amazing, extraordinary privilege from a very undeserving people, Father. We love you. So thankful, God, for you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.